0: Thank you, worship team, and good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's good to see you this morning. I know you see us, but uh, we're still here, and um, we're going to continue to be here, and we appreciate your faithful attendance in tuning in on Sunday mornings and joining us in, in worship. Um, I can tell you this. There will be an end to this. I know we're all getting tired of it, but it, it's going to come to an end. And we will be together again. We've sung songs this morning about God's great promises to us. And they are indeed uh, promises that are intact. Because God uh, cannot not keep his word. He must and he will. And so we're grateful to him that we can say that. Not only will there be an end to this, but good will come of it too. Uh, Good has come of it in many ways. And we can be assured that good will come. I'd like to repeat something that I said to you at the very beginning of this uh, this trial that we find ourselves in, the pandemic, and being separated by not being able to worship. And that is to ask God, what are you doing? What are you doing, God, in this world? Uh, What are you doing in my family? What are you doing in my life? What can I learn from this? Um, We uh, know that God uh, causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose, And we know that all trials have that purpose of growing us, and so uh, we should not um, spend so much time uh, grieving about what we have lost, but we should focus upon what we are gaining by uh, faithfulness in the midst of the trial. So encouragement to you today to stay faithful to the Lord, and I know it's difficult that we don't meet face-to-face, but nothing has changed about our God, and nothing has changed about his promises. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are grateful for the fact that you are on the throne. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the only God who sits high and holy and lifted up above the world and all that is in it. For you have made it and you've made us. You've made kingdoms, you've made governors and mayors, presidents. They all do your bidding they all will one day bow to you. Every one of them are small before you, as are we. We pray for the hearts of those with whom we have to do to find favor in their eyes that we might be able to once again gather. We pray for the grace and the courage to do what we must do. And we pray, Father, for you to give wisdom for our elders and for churches in um, in our city, in our state, and around our nation who are facing the same things that we are facing. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is intimately involved in all of these things. You have not taken a vacation. You have not socially distanced yourself from us in any way. You are here. You are present. And for that, we give you thanks. Would you now speak to us through your word and allow us to learn more about your Son we pray these things in his name. Amen. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Of course we believe in miracles. We are Christians and we believe in the Bible. We come to the Bible with this first and foremost belief that God exists and God is the creator of the entire universe and he is he is the ultimate. He is the the uh, ultimately powerful God. is infinitely powerful. He is personal, and he is absolute, and he exists outside of his, his creation. His creation is something that he made just by the very breath of his word. All that exists exists by him and for him, and so as the ultimate being of the universe, as the one who possesses all power, he alone is able to work within uh, the world at any time through what we would call miracles. Many think that the Bible is full of miracles, and there are a lot of miracles in the Bible, but uh, a lot of people think that uh, it is just nothing but uh, Genesis to Revelation, miracle after miracle after miracle, and that really isn't the truth. We have this story in the Bible of God's people and how he is working in the lives of God's people. And once in a while, it is punctuated by what we would call the miraculous. And so we remember those stories because they are memorable, because they are miraculous. Jonah being swallowed by the great fish in his stomach for three days. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when God rained down fire from heaven. We know the, the stories of, of, of uh, the Lord appearing to, to, to Moses and the plagues of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. and We remember these stories. The story of, of Elijah raising the, the widow's son from the dead. And then, of course, all the miracles of Jesus as well. Daniel's, Daniel and the lion's den and the three Hebrew children who are uh, in the fire and yet not consumed by it. So these are great stories and they're important stories. But what is their purpose? What is the purpose of a miracle? Um The purpose of a miracle is not to call attention to itself, but to call attention to the God of the miracles. We often say that a miracle is a suspension of natural law, but there is more to it than that. I appreciate theologian John Frame who speaks about the purpose of miracles. He says miracles mean several things. First of all, they're a display of God's power. God is powerful. When we see a miracle, we see a being who is doing something that is beyond the ordinary. It is extraordinary. It is supernatural. And we see a being who can do something and does something that human beings would never be able to even understand that kind of power. We also see authority. When God per, uh, performs a miracle, there is authority. For instance, When um, the plagues uh, were presented to to Pharaoh, there was this demonstration of authority over all the gods of the Egyptians. When you think about uh, the the miracles of Jesus, when he walks on water, when he stills the storm, storm, it expresses his authority over nature itself. When he heals the, the leper, his authority over uncleanness. When he heals someone who is sick, his authority over sickness. When he, when he raises someone from the dead, his authority over death itself by being the God of life. So power and authority and miracles also mean the presence of God. When a miracle occurs, God makes it known that he is there, he is present, and it calls attention to himself that people would see that he is present in the situation And he is beyond the situation and doing something for his purpose by his presence. And it's all for what? Worship. Miracles are meant to cause God's people to bow down and to worship him. In our text that we read earlier, uh, the miracle is called a sign. And that's the normal word that is used in the New Testament, particularly by John, a sign. Jesus performs these signs which are miracles. And what is the purpose of a sign? Purpose of a sign is to point you towards something. If you're driving along a, a mountain highway and you see that yellow uh, triangle and it's got the squiggly arrow on top of it, you you don't drive by and go, wow, that was a great sign and, and run yourself off the road. It is pointing to something. You are to pay attention to what's ahead, and that is that the road is going to be windy and perhaps dangerously windy. And signs always point to something. And what they point to, Jesus' signs, are to him. They point to him as the Messiah, as the Savior. He is the God who came to save us. In this very passage that features a miracle, the the healing of this man's son, in a passage that features a miracle, there is a rebuke to those who seek them and follow after them and put their trust in them. And that's what this passage is all about. Do not put your trust in miracles. People were putting their trust in miracles. People today trust in miracles above uh, the Messiah. And uh, Jesus is going to make it very, very clear in this passage that uh, he is to be trusted because of his miracles, and they point to him, but we do not trust in the miracles. So the first thing I would like us to see in verses 43 to the first part of 46, do not put your faith in popularity. Popularity. And I say popularity because I mean the idea of popularity and Jesus was becoming popular. Why? Because of miracles. And he eschewed that. He did not want that popularity. He he ran away from popularity that was based on the false premise of miracles. Look at verse 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. The two days. This takes us back to the previous story of Jesus in Samaria. He had met the Samaritan woman, this unlikely person, this notorious woman. And she had come to faith. She went and enthusiastically and urgently shared her faith with the men of the city. And they came back and they spent two days talking to Jesus about who he was. And remember their conclusion? They had put their their faith in the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And they had come to the conclusion that he was indeed the savior of the world. So after those two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, his home country. He's a Galilean. He's from Nazareth of Galilee. What we see in this passage, and we'll look at a map in just a minute, throughout this passage, there are uh, at least 10 references to geography. Um, John is making a point here about the movement of Jesus from uh, chapter 2 to this point. But he, he comes into Galilee, and notice what it says in verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He came into Galilee because he had said a prophet has no honor in his own country. That phrase, a prophet has no honor, is found in all four of the gospels, sometimes it says in his hometown in his own country, but Jesus was from Nazareth, he was from the um, uh, the province of Galilee, he was from Israel, and these are the people who did not accept him. He testified that a prophet has no honor in his own in his own country that language reminds us of In John chapter one, he says, For he came into his own, and what happened? His own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, Samaritans. So far he has not been accepted by his own, who are his own? Jews, Galileans, those from Nazareth. These are the people who reject him. But those who are not his own, these lowly Samaritans, so far, these are the ones who have accepted him. So having been accepted by them, he comes back north into Galilee, and he's going to prove that point. Verse 45 says, so, because a prophet has no honor in his own country, when he came into the Galilee, the Galileans received him. Now that sounds... Contradictory, doesn't it? That the the word received him means they welcomed him home. Having seen all the things that he had did in Jerusalem at the feast, where they themselves also went to the feast. Why did they welcome him? How did they welcome him? They welcomed his popularity. They welcomed him because they had seen him do uh, signs in Jerusalem we don't know what those signs were, but back at the end of chapter 2, Jesus had done some other miracles. His friends, his family from Galilee, they had been to the feast, they had seen this thing. Oh, we love the way he went uh, sparred with the, the, uh, with the Pharisees, and he left his mark on them, and ouch, that's going to leave a mark on their head. He thumped them down really hard, and, and, uh, and he did miracles, and they were following him as a miracle worker. They were not honoring him as a prophet They were following him as someone and something else. They were there. They'd seen all that had happened. And so they welcome him home. And it's quite a a welcome on their part because they just want to see more of the carnival show. In verse 46, A says this, Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. So we see these geographical references, and it's taking us all the way back to him turning the water to wine, his first miracle, his first sign that he performed. And so that brings us uh, full circle. I want to um, look at a map here, and uh, as we look at this map, we're going to be able to see and follow the movements of Jesus as uh, he goes from... From location to lo- location, you know. Um, we can we see the map yet? We're working on it. You know, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River um, down in between Judea and Perea, and uh, he. Um, so he was baptized somewhere down here, you see. But, but the the locations we look at are Judea, Samaria. Galilee. He's baptized here. At this point after his baptism, remember he picks up a couple of disciples. He picks up uh um he picks up James, or rather he picks up uh John and and Peter and Andrew. And then he goes up Back to Galilee. We don't know exactly where, but he's going to uh, there he picks up other disciples. He picks up Nathanael and he picks up Philip. But then it says in chapter 2 After three days, interesting, because our text begins after the two days. But after three days, he is at Cana, and at Cana he performs that first miracle. And so, after that first miracle, we know that he comes down, and he goes to Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, what does he do there? While he's in Jerusalem, he is uh, he he goes to the temple. And he has this uh, run-in with the, the Pharisees. They challenge his authority. He challenged theirs. He does some miracles, and some people believe in him. And we saw at that point that their faith was false. It was spurious because they believed in the miracles and not in the man. And it wasn't even until the disciples read this later that they go, Oh, now we understand what he was talking about. But these miracles brought about a false faith. They have a purpose and a good purpose. But initially, this is how people uh, look at the miracles. Then he has a a discussion with, with Nicodemus, a very important one, about being born again. And we don't know exactly when it is. Nicodemus is born again, but it is sometime after that. And then his disciples begin to baptize. Remember that story? John is baptizing Jesus is baptizing. Jesus is becoming more popular. So what does he do? He runs away. He doesn't want to be popular. He wants to be faithful. And so he runs away. He doesn't run away in the sense that he's running away from something. But he is is not accepting popularity. We would do the opposite. If we're becoming popular, we're going to ride the crest of the wave. But instead, Jesus walks away from that popularity. And where does he go he goes to Sychar in Samaria, where he meets the Samaritan woman, the most unlikely of people to have a conversation with, where she discovers that he is a prophet. She discovers that he is the prophet. She discovers that he is Messiah. She discovers that he is God incarnate. She tells the Samaritan men, and they come, and they too put their faith and believe that he is the Savior of the world. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. But he came to his own, and his own received him not. Two days later, he comes up and he lands in Cana once again. So, John is finishing for us this geographical tour, this movement of Jesus, where he starts in Cana, he comes to Jerusalem, he goes to Samaria and he comes to Galilee, and what is he demonstrating in this trip? A prophet has no honor amongst his own people. Those in Jerusalem, those in Judea, those in Galilee, but the Samaritans have accepted him. So, now, what is the lesson in this? What is the lesson in this? The lesson is this. God has called us to faithfulness, and not popularity the Galileans didn't recognize what they had they thought they had one thing and he was altogether different and they were willing to settle for less and when I say we shouldn't uh, look to popularity I don't mean personal popularity but popularity uh, personal popularity can be dangerous as well because it, it breeds pride, it breeds competition It's not sinful to be popular, but to seek it can be problematic, just like money. Money can be a special snare to us towards sin. And popularity can breed pride in our lives. And the idea of being a popular church, for instance, or a popular people, that we want uh, people to flock to us and come to us, we need to be careful. What does God require? Faithfulness. What did God require of his son? To be popular? Was he going to end up popular? He was going to end up the opposite. He was called to be faithful, and so should we be called to be faithful. You know, we live in a time where we talk about popularity. Um, what's important to many people is uh, when we talk about this, what's in vogue? What is trending? What is trendy? How many clicks, how many friends, how many followers, and we look at it, we have a, uh, um, a, uh, a celebrity um, mentality in all of, our, um, all of our culture, which brings us to our second lesson. Sometimes God's best people are right under our noses. They didn't know what they had. They wanted a miracle worker. They had a miracle worker in their midst, but they didn't know that he was the Messiah. They didn't want to even believe that. That's a little harder. It's easy to follow what's popular. We live in, in a, a, a culture of celebrity. I mean, we, we look up to uh, celebrity sports figures, uh, celebrity politicians. We, we look up to celebrity, um, celebrity musicians and actors and unfortunately even celebrity churches celebrity pastors unfortunately that's part of the of the 21st century american culture in which we live and we should we should always seek to be faithful once again and recognize right here at Valley Bible Church we have people of the best quality we don't need to look somewhere else we don't need to find someone else or something else that someone else is doing somewhere else. We have we have uh, such great and mighty gifted people at Valley Bible Church. And as a body, he has placed each and every one of us here for a very specific purpose. And the best people for Valley Bible Church are at Valley Bible Church. We should honor them. We should honor all those. Uh, uh, it's kind of hard to do this right now while we are uh, apart from one another but, but it's important for us to understand God has gifted each and every one of us and we have a purpose in this church fellowship and he has gifted each and every one of us to specifically minister in this church fellowship and we shouldn't worry about the numbers of cliques and followers and friends and all of those these are not kingdom metrics are they? Kingdom metric is faithfulness, that we're following Christ, not a celebrity. So do not place your faith in popularity. And the heart of this is found in verses 46b through 48. Do not place your faith in miracles, miracles breed that popularity. There are lots of churches that seek that, the big, the big and the showy and the, you know, the, uh, the whatever is pragmatic and what, whatever will bring a crowd in because we want to be pro- popular in, in the, the, the way of, of thinking sometimes is well. If we do miracles, we'll bring in more people and that will spread the, the word of God. Not necessarily as we will see. Second part of verse 46 says this. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, there are the geographical references again, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. A royal official, this is the one word, and uh, it, it, we, this man may have been part of the, the household of the, the Herodians, which was a royal household, even though Herod, who was the... the, the who. Governed all of uh, Judea and Samaria and Galilee um, was not a king. He was sometimes called a king. He was more of a governor. And as we know, sometimes governors act like they're kings as well. But this one, he was not a governor. But this was a guy who was probably related to Herod and one of his lesser officials. So this is what we know about him. He was of high social order. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He was looked up to by some, except for when it came tax time. But he was a man of power. He was a man of position. He was a man of persuasion. He was a man of money. But he is also a father. And his son was sick. And sick to the point of death, nearly. And it says, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea... How did he hear that? Oh, oh, by the way, he was from Capernaum. Capernaum is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was about 20 miles away. So this man, uh, his son was home in Capernaum. But when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea, he went to Cana to ask for a miracle. This man had probably ridden a horse these some 20 miles frantically. You can imagine, if your child is on the point of death, wouldn't you do anything that you could do? And this man had come this great distance. He had a son who was sick, and the sick was on the point of dying. And when he heard that Jesus had come to Judea, he went to him. But how did he hear this news? They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have any way of conveying uh, news other than just mouth, you know, word of mouth. If there was a uh, newspaper at that time, the uh, Galilean Gazette or something like that, it would have probably had two headlines in the newspaper that day. And according to to today's journalistic standards, it would have probably said this. The first headline was this. Notorious woman leads Samaritan men over cliff. They left out a few details, but that's the way it would probably read. And the second story would be this. Galilean miracle worker returns to adoring crowds. And they left out some things there, too, that he was the prophet, that he was the Messiah. And this man had heard that the miracle worker had returned to Galilee... And he had just the miracle for him because his, sin was, his son was at the point of dying. And so he went to him, these some 20 miles. He was imploring him. The word means to ask, but the, the, the tense of the verb is what gives it its, its oomph. He was asking repeatedly and imploringly and earnestly. Why? Because his son was dying. What was he asking him to do? A miracle. And he was asking him to to go all the way from Cana, those some 20 miles, all the way back to Capernaum in order to heal his dying son. The word had traveled fast, and what he had learned was there's a miracle worker back in Galilee, and this is my opportunity for my son to live. He apparently believed that Jesus could heal him because that's what he specifically asked for. And he obviously had to come that great distance in this man who had a lot of power and a lot of prestige teaches us that there are many things over which we are powerless. Which is our first lesson there. When faced with life's greatest difficulties, we become very small before God. This man, for all of his power and his prestige, his position, all the people who followed him, all the money that he had, the servants that he had, everything that he had, what did it mean at this moment? It meant absolutely nothing. And I think we can see the... uh, the, the the comparison that is implied between this Samaritan woman and this man. She's a woman. She's an outcast. She's a Samaritan. She's an outcast. She's she's not a Jew. This is a Jew. He has a Jew of high uh, standing. People look up to him. And he's got great wealth, but God is no respecter of persons. He is going to accept the lowly. He is going to uh, accept those who are lifted up, and he will do that in his grace depending upon faith. But when we are faced with life's greatest difficulties, we become very small. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Sometimes the greatest trial of someone's life is, is a, a cancer, death of a child, death of a spouse, losing a job, or on the brink of all these things like this man was. You can understand where he was at at this moment. By God's grace, we have not had grave illnesses with our children, but I remember um, with a young baby, as a young father, the first time they had a fever, the first time they had a cold and couldn't breathe. You think the worst, something's going to happen. They're not going to make it through the night, they're going to choke, whatever it may be. And there's that feeling within you that is so very, very frightening and frantic. This man was a father and he was also a frantic father and he cared about his son. Unfortunately, I have been with families and walked through with them instances where that pink little baby takes on an ashen gray and then the pallor of death. I don't think that there is any, any trial that anyone faces that could be as difficult as that and this man is on the brink and sometimes we are on the brink when when things are taken away from us we become very small but god becomes get very big that's when we recognize that he is great that's when we recognize that he is greater than the miracle that's when we recognize that he is greater than ourselves And no matter what our position, our bank account, our reputation, our station in life, this demonstrates that we are equally powerless against things like sin and sickness and death. But God, who created us and made all things, is greater than all of these things. We should think and pray for our leaders right now that they would recognize that God is almighty. I hope that they would recognize that they are not in control of all things. I hope that they would recognize that they are very small and, and that God is El Shaddai. He is the one who is over all of the world and over, over all authority. And we should bow to his authority and pray that our leaders do as well. Jesus said in Matthew Matthew 23, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So when we humble ourselves before God, then he listens to our requests. Verse 48 is right in the middle of the passage. And this is a statement by by Jesus that really drops the hammer on the people who are around. Verse 48, this, this man comes. You can only imagine. He's... His son is dying. He comes, these 20 miles, riding a horse as fast as he can. The animal's probably uh, practically dead. And he finds the miracle worker, and he says, you've got to come and save my son. You've got to come. I know you can do this. You've got to come. You've got to come. And Jesus says in verse 48, Jesus says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Is that harsh? Yeah, that is harsh. He says to him, but he says in our most translations, um, supply the word you people, because you is plural. And there's a crowd around, and they're probably thinking, oh boy, we've got a little boy who's dying. We get to see a miracle. Seriously. Seriously. Carnival's come to town and the the big show is here and they buy their candy apple and they eat that and they throw away the core. They miss the core. It's him. And he's talking to all those who are around. He says, you are looking for signs and wonders. It's another word that he used. He's being, I think, fairly sarcastic here. Unless you see those things, you won't believe. He's chastising them. They have a penchant for miracles and miracle workers. They don't care about a Messiah. Give us the miracle. That's what we are really about. This seems harsh to this man. But before we see his response in Jesus, the lesson is this. Seek the God of miracles, not the miracles of God. Don't place your trust in miracles. There are lots of false miracles. Even here where the miracles are true, Jesus is saying there's much more than a miracle that is at play here. Oftentimes we do that. Sometimes, and you've heard me say this before, when it comes to prayer, it's all about the the request and it's all about the answer. God, do this for me. Please Please do this. Please do this. Please do this. And it is not about the answer, but it's about the answerer. It's about the one who answers. Yes, we are to seek and knock, and we are to keep on uh, looking and, and asking him. But ultimately, what we are seeking is him, not answers. Because sometimes he does say no. And what happens when he says no? That's why I, I really believe the Uh, The the most important lesson, one of the most important lessons in in the Christian life is whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth I desire nothing else. Nothing in heaven or on earth, no answer to prayer, satisfies. It's candy. Nothing satisfies but Him. He's the core. He is only the one who can satisfy, not the miracle. And we seek the things that God can do for us. Not the God who works for us. And I know that sounds to you make like a little bit of chastising. But if the shoe fits for us, then we should wear it. Yes, pray. Yes, seek. Yes, pray for miracles. But in the end, it is God we seek. Not all that he will do for us. He is not a vending machine. That's the way the Galileans were viewing it, and that's the way many people were were viewing it. And you know what that is? It is flimsy. It is false. And in time, they're going to walk away from him because he's not what they thought he was. They thought he was the, the big show, but he's more than that. He is God himself. You know what? In our day and age, we have uh, a lot of false workers we need to watch out for. Um, the word of faith movement is so dangerous to people. It tells, you, tells Christians, you, you always need to be happy. God promises you'll always be happy. He has not promised that. You should be healthy. God has never promised that you'll always be healthy. He never promised that he's going to heal your son or your daughter or your cancer you should always be wealthy god has never promised that he's never promised that you're not going to go bankrupt he's never promised that you're not that you may go hunt may not go hungry god has never made these promises he promises what he will and he wills what he promises but we have so many uh, false teachers out there who are leading people astray with this word of faith move- movement and they are they're Making, you know, building upon popularity and so-called miracles, but where are they? I don't know of any miracles that I've seen uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Word of Faith movement that are like New Testament miracles. Like I said, we see this, this history of God's people. It is punctuated by these miracles. And in the time of Christ and the apostles, there were a lot of miracles, But even by the end of the apostolic age, they were trailing off to the point that uh, that Paul says to Timothy, "Uh, you need to take a little wine for your stomach ache, and he doesn't heal him from afar. And we see that those miracles are fading off. Where are the miracle workers? Where are those who do New Testament miracles where someone is born with a withered hand and they stretch it out? Someone who is born blind and they give them sight. Someone one who is really dead and they raise them from the dead. You, don't, you never see that. Where are those who take two masks and five ventilators and multiply them for 5,000 healings? Why aren't they going into the hospitals and emptying them of coronavirus patients? Because they're false workers. And what they lead to is false... Another example, a horrible example, um, I think, is is Bethel Ministries. And I'll say it outright. Uh, You may have seen, uh, it was just a horrible, tragic thing that happened several months ago when a small child of one of their staff members died. And they spent, I think, about a week as a church coming together and, and dancing and praying and begging and imploring and imploring and imploring and imploring, God, raise her from the dead and he didn't why it wasn't his will and that isn't the normal way that he works you know what happens people walk away from that i wonder how many people walked away from that church and that ministry and when people walk away from ministries like that where there's the word of faith because they're sold the bill of goods and it doesn't happen they don't walk away and go to another church you know what happens they walk away from the faith. There are so many people whose faith is shipwrecked by being promised one thing and given another, and then they're, they're, uh, all they can say is, this Christianity thing is bunk. I was sold a bill of goods. Jesus is very clear here. You've got to seek me. Not the miracles. Often, when the Bible says that someone believes, it is a it's a base, a faith that is based on false premises, and therefore it is false. And if someone places their faith in a false Jesus, in a false gospel, it is not faith at all. It's faith, but it's not saving faith, and it's false. So we don't trust in popularity. We shouldn't seek that. We shouldn't uh, emulate that. We shouldn't in any way think that that is the way to go. We do not put our faith in miracles. Miracles happen. And by the way, I believe God can still do miracles. God can do whatever he wants. And I've seen some things in my day that I believe that were miraculous answers to prayer. All I'm saying is... um, I don't see apostolic gifts of healing like many people claim. But the third thing is do put your faith in Messiah, in his word. Don't put your faith in popularity. Don't put your faith in miracles. Do put your faith in the Messiah, in his word. Verse 49 says this. The, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Didn't he just hear what Jesus said? You people are just looking for miracles. I'm sure he heard it. You know what's on his mind? Not that. He genuinely is frantic for his son. And we're going to we see from the language here. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. He wasn't trusting in a miracle, but he was trusting in the words of Jesus himself. Notice how he says, Sir. Again, this is a man of position. This is a man of power. This is a man that Jesus probably should have been addressing as Sir. Instead, he says, please, just come down to Capernaum, 20 miles away, down because it's nearly 700 feet below sea level. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, very simply, go. Your son lives. And what happens? The man believed the word of Jesus, spoke to him, and he started off. Jesus is going to heal his son. Why? Because it was his will. Does he heal everyone? Absolutely not. Does he heal every son that is sick? Of course not. But in this instance he was he was teaching something. The royal official repeats the plea that Jesus come to Capernaum and Jesus simply says, "Go, he lives." Notice, does the man see the miracle? Does he see the healing? Does he see the sign? Do those around him see a sign? They see nothing. All they hear are the words of Jesus, Go. Your son lives. And they see the man walk off. And they're probably, Well, that turned out to be a nothing burger. Nope. Jesus healed from afar. The man thought he was a miracle worker. The man thought he had to come all the way to Capernaum. And he does this miracle in a, in a way that is, it is remarkable. He heals from afar. It is all of grace. And so that the man will believe that he is the Savior. The lesson for us is this. We must believe that Jesus is not only able to do what he says he will do, but that he will do what he says he will do. If Jesus says he is going to do something, he will do it. If he absolutely promises, he will do it. In fact, every word of God will be fulfilled. Matthew 24, 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will not pass away. He promised that everything that he says will be done. And we can trust in that. He cannot do otherwise because he is God and when he speaks, what he says is true. And and by faith, this man, by faith, acts on the promises that God has given to him. And the lesson for us is the same. By faith, act on the promises that God has given to us. We must believe and we must act on those promises. And the second lesson is this. And I think it's important to help us to differentiate what's happening in the story There are different kinds of belief, different kinds of belief. There's the belief that God can do anything. We must believe that because of who he is, that he is the creator God, that he is all powerful. We believe that he can do anything. Could he heal people in our church right now of cancer? Absolutely. If we think, no, he couldn't do that, then we have the wrong God. Yes, we believe he can do anything, but we must humbly submit to his will just cuz he can do anything doesn't mean he will do whatever we ask it must be in his will a second kind of belief is we believe as a belief that he will do what he has promised he will do what he has promised and yet humble obedience to his commands most of the promises that are given to us come with a command do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not, told, I if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. It's a promise. He promised that he's doing that. And so therefore, our response is obedience. Do not let our hearts be troubled. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness In the promise, all these things will be added to you. God will give us all that we need, but our part is to seek first him in his kingdom. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He will always be with us. But the first part of that is go and make disciples. So just with about every promise that is given, there is humble obedience to its command that is placed upon us. And the third kind of belief that we see is belief in the person of Christ for salvation. And humbly worship him as Lord. This is what we call belief or faith in the salvific sense. There is a, You can trust God daily for your needs. It is a different kind of trusting him for your salvation and your forgiveness. And that's where the story leads belief in the person of christ for salvation and humbly worshiping him and this is what happened in verse, happens in verses 51 through 53 as he was now going down his slaves met him saying that his son was living his slaves mentions uh, mention of slaves shows us that he is indeed a wealthy man and he inquired of the hour that he began to get better <clears throat> Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So he meets a slave, slaves, and they say, your son lives. And he looks at his watch and he says, well, what time did this happen? It's the next day. We don't really understand why it's the next day, other than time has elapsed. Um, by Jewish reckoning of time, it was the seventh hour would have been 1 p.m., and that's probably when it happened. Um, best explanation is probably that he was, his uh, animal was exhausted and needed rest. And he had believed in God's word. He had believed that Christ said he would do what he said he would do. So on his way home, he's met by his slaves, and they said, "Um, at one o'clock in the afternoon yesterday, your son was well. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And this last clause is the point of the story and he himself believed in his whole household. He believed in his whole household. The purpose of the miracle was not the miracle. The purpose of the miracle was for him to believe. Didn't it say that he already believed the man? Yes, it was a different kind of belief. He believed the word of Christ, that he was able, and that he would heal his son. Here, this belief is a belief for salvation. I say this, I think it is absolutely uh, obvious when you you look at the whole story of the Samaritans, what was the conclusion that the woman and the Samaritans came to? That Jesus was the savior of the world. This man, in the same circle of events, comes to the same conclusion. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. More than a carnival sideshow, he is the savior of the world. There's a couple of lessons here. First is that the work of God's son is salvation, and that's the bottom line. Believe in Messiah and his word for salvation, that he is able to save us from our sins. He's able to to heal us if he so chooses, but the greater miracle is our being born again and having a promised home in heaven and being led to that faith by his Holy Spirit. And the second lesson is, is one for us as families, and that is that the faith of a father is powerful. This man who loved his son, obviously, loved him dearly, he w- went to bat for his son, and he did whatever he could for his son, but then he believed in, in, in the father of of the Son of God, and when he did that, he was a believer, and the rest of his household came to faith as well. We see that often in the scriptures. Dads, that doesn't mean there's a guarantee that if you follow Christ, your kids will follow Christ, but I tell you what, there's a better chance they will if you do. And then he closes the section with verse 54, which says, this again, a second sign Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea in Galilee and that concludes from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 4. It's all one section. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in Jesus, the Savior and Lord? Yes, we believe in miracles. Of course we do. The raising of Jesus from the dead was a miracle. But we don't believe in miracles that that is what we really need. God may, God will perhaps perform miracles even in our midst. But it's not about the miracle, it's about the man. It's about the Son of God, it's about the Savior and Lord. In the end, this story is is not so much about the miracle, it's about the Father's faith, isn't it? And though there's a miracle in the story, Jesus rebukes the Galileans for their penchant for miracles. And I think he does that today for those who just all they do is follow the big show and the miracles and the hype and the excitement. Signs point to something, remember? Not to themselves. They represent something that is greater. And every time we see one of these signs... Throughout the writings of John, through the end of the book, we always need to come back to this passage, John 20, 30-31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. These signs, why do they exist? So that you may believe, not in the miracle, but that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing in Him, you may have life in His name for all that He's done. That is the purpose of the miracles. People to believe in the gospel. Now our story began with Jesus saying that He was not properly honored. So here's how we end. Honor Christ as the prophet. Honor Christ as and his word. And honor Christ for his person and work as Lord and as Savior. That's what he wants from us. Thank you, Father, for your word. We Thank you for its clarity to help us to understand what it is you really want from us. May we be worshipers of you, for you are a miraculous God. And your miracles have great purpose. But keep us, Father, from from straying from you as worshiping you as the the great God of the universe in a personal way. Thank you, Father, for this story and the faith of this man. We can resonate with his, his plight and we can resonate with his faith. And I pray for everyone who is listening now to truly declare you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.